Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Let, let's go back, Chris. Uh, you know, you've risen to the top of, you know, uh, uh, the shop that in my mind has become the shining example of how, you know, a big organization is still capable of being nimble, of delivering incredibly creative work and being a successful business. But let's go back. When you were working... Uh, when you were going to school, rather, as a young man, you were at St. Edward's uh, way back when. Were you a creative kid? Is that how you would describe yourself? Or, you know, was there any hint at all of where you were going to end up back then I, as a young man? I think what it's interesting because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I was at, at school, I, I did some acting. I was in some performances. Um, I was pretty good at history. I was pretty good at English. Uh, I liked reading a lot. I liked creative writing, but I didn't really know where I was going to end up. Um, so I, I, I sort of got through school. I got into university and I read English and American literature at university. And, and during university, I actually performed in, in about seven plays. I, I, was a, I was a very good fake Richard Burton. I could do the drama and the anger and the anguish and I could, I could kind of put on a pretty good deep voice. So I... I I got cast, I got a bit typecast in Richard Burton style roles. Uh, and I, as I left university, I, I sort of thought to myself, well, what do I want to do? And, and I um, applied to drama school. So I, I started to apply to drama schools. And I realized pretty quickly that a lot of people who are applying for drama schools were really, really good. And I don't think I was very good. I think I was okay. Um, so I realized they were really, really good. And I wanted to be really good at something. Um, and then by luck, in my last year at university, my, my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, she had written off to all these ad agencies and she'd got all the prospectuses back. And so she'd sort of looked at them and then she said, okay, I'm gonna go and do a, an MBA. So I'm not gonna get involved in, in advertising. I'm not gonna apply. So I said, well, I started to read the, the prospectuses. So I was reading the prospectuses and all this stuff. And I was reading about the, the amazing sort of industry that was advertising in the late 80s, if you think Saatchi and Saatchi and all these very famous characters um, and the work that was, that was going out into the world that I just thought was incredible. And that sort of grabbed me. And what really grabbed me was this thing about you can have creativity in commerce. There's this beautiful phrase around our ability to mix creativity with commerce to deliver business results, but do it in an incredibly creative way. And I sort, of, I sort of got hooked on thinking about that. And the other thing that they said was, you have to watch a lot of TV. And I loved watching TV. So I was like, hang on, I can watch TV. I can sell stuff. I like selling stuff. I can show off. I can sort of act, pretend I'm on stage when you perform. So I was like, this sounds great. So that's kind of how this rather random route to end up in advertising happened. And... I saw you, one of your early gigs was with Low Howard and Spink. Was that the first or was there something before then? No, it was my second job. So my first job was I went to uh, an agency you'll know well called DMBMB. 
Uh, And DMBNB, as you know, was a big network. Uh, Procter & Gamble and Mars was two of their founding clients. Um, And I was was sort of decided that if I was going to go into an agency, I'd like to go to one that had a really good training scheme. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the son of a sort of finance guy and, and my brother's an accountant and my sister was a barrister. So you can imagine they didn't really know what I did, but they went, wherever you go, get a training. Make sure they do training. So I, I looked at DMBNB and everyone said, hey, they're training second to none. So I got in and I did three years at DMBNB. I worked on Procter & Gamble. Uh, I worked on a bunch of clients in a, in a lot of categories. And I think what was interesting was P&G had a really good way of training you because they made the junior people present. So it was terrifying. I mean, you're 21, 22 years old, and you're presenting to the kind of the head of P&G UK. And so you, you kind of learn very quickly how to think about competitors. How do you think about communication messaging? How do you structure uh, the way you do side-by-side demonstrations and proof points and all that stuff? So actually, I did three years where I think I learned a hell of a lot about how to think about marketing, how to think about advertising and the role of advertising. And I'd imagine there are things that you learned then all those years ago that stay with you today. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I am, I am pretty, pretty good at an RTB. I'm pretty good at understanding what products do and how to find the best superiority claims. I, I shouldn't admit that, but frankly, I still love digging into the client's brands, the products, the specs, the technology to, to really find out what the, the points of differentiation are. Um, and I think that comes from that era uh, 30 odd years ago when I think that was how I got trained. Fantastic. And then you moved on to uh, a smaller shop, Low Howard Spink. Yeah. And Low Howard Spink at the time was, a, was an agency with about 12 clients. It was almost like the most remarkable boutique. Um, it was part of Interpublic, but it was led by Frank Lowe. Um, and what they, I think what I learned there was the power of a, a creative idea. And actually the point was how to understand, nurture, sell, um, and really craft ideas. The water in Mallorca doesn't taste like what it ought no, to. No, no, The water in Mallorca don't taste like what it ought to. The water in Mallorca doesn't taste quite how it should. Majorca. Mallorca. 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 Oi, Dale, any danger of some refreshment in here? Here you are. Get your laughing gear in there. Oh, golly. The water in Majorca. What's that? Don't taste like what it ought to. The water in Majorca don't taste like what it ought to. She's cracking. She's only cracking. You're absolutely wrong. Heineken refreshes the parts what other beers cannot reach. And they were fantastic. It was a fantastic agency. Everything used to get approved and signed off. So every time you went to see the client with whatever you had, whether it was a print ad, whether it was radio, whether it was TV, back in that day, it had been signed off by the management team. So both you felt the validation of the management team telling you the work was great and also the fear of going back and saying there were issues with the work that they'd signed off. So it was kind of a double-edged sword for a junior account guy. But the the fact that there was so much care, love um, and sort of passion for the idea 
and the craft, the craft skills of using great directors, the craft skills of using great photographers, the craft of using the best possible animators, designers, graphics designers, all those people that they used to say, look, this is the most important thing that we're going to hire the amazing people to do the best possible work. And I think that was just a brilliant opportunity. I worked primarily during that time on Voxel and I got to just make so much work. Um, and it was print or whatever format it was in. It was always done with just the amazing amount of love and care. Lots of cars come full of attractive features and a good value for money. Until they're stolen. After you've gone and left me crying. After you've gone, there's no denying. The Cavalier GL is good value for money. You feel sad. Not just because it's full of attractive features like power steering and a radio with removable display panel, but because you won't find a car with better security. It's amazing because it's so simple the way you say it, you know, hire great people and, and let, them, let them go and put them on the mm. field. And yet so many folks don't get that right. It's, well, it's funny because if you hire great people, you've got to respect and trust them to do what they do. And I think Lowe's was a great place for understanding that. Um, and also just to make you laugh, I mean, the thing that always made me, made me um, laugh at Lowe's was, traffic back in the day the traffic department now it was probably project management but back in the day the traffic department the traffic department ruled low hat spink those guys could make your career or break your career they could help you out of trouble or they could get you into trouble and so the whole agency had a heartbeat and a rhythm of how the work got made and meetings that were put in that were to debate the work and you know we used to do the the whole pre-prod with photographers the pre-prod with directors you know, we used to really sweat on how we were going to do the best possible job on each project. And I think that just level of, I don't know, purity, determination and desire was just uh, amazing. And, and it did make the work better, the agency better. And by the way, we, we had some very tough, uh, very challenging relationships with our clients, which were built on mutual respect. Uh, and we had clients that were fitted to Lowe's, loved the way Lowe's worked, and they bought into it and believed in it. And we were there determined to do the best possible work we could do for them. It wasn't an agency for the faint-hearted. Right. And Frank was one of those larger-than-life characters, wasn't he? Mm. He was. To be fair, I didn't cross over with him for that long, but without a doubt, you know, the agency was built to his standards. The values that you bring to your work, the standards that you bring to your work, your refusal to compromise, your understanding of what creativity is and that it's hard won, that there are no shortcuts, no quick answers. And I know that every single person that worked there feels the same way. You know, if he saw work he didn't like, you'd get a memo on a, on a blue piece of paper that got delivered to your office or to your, to your desk saying, uh, Mr. Lowe watched this commercial last night and he thinks X, Y, Z is wrong, please redo it. And of course, then you had to work out how to go back to the client and say, by the way, we're remaking this because actually we don't think this is good enough. And it was pretty, it was pretty remarkable. Um, I will, and I'll tell you just in case anyone from my old London days uh, will listen to this one day. I had a nickname at Lowe's, which was Fly Copy. And back in the day, obviously all print ads used to have fly type along the bottom of the ad, which sort of was all the legal stuff you had to put in. And one night we were doing an ad and, 
the fly copy missed out a full stop. There was a full stop, the, a point they missed in the fly copy, and it was 2 a.m. And I said, hey, it's missing, a, it's missing a full stop, a point. Uh, and they said, yeah, but look, it's the fly copy. It's tiny. No one's going to notice. No one will care. And I said, here's the thing. I've noticed. So I think we got home at 6 a.m. I got my point, my full stop in the ad. And after that, they all called me fly copy in the studio. So I had, I had that nickname for many years. And recently, someone connected with me who said, hey, fly copy, how are you? Which did make me laugh. So then we move on and we move up to publicists where you uh, became the head of account management. Was that a pretty big step forward at that point for your career? Yeah, I think it was. It was kind of funny. I, I think everyone used to have that thing in London. I don't know if it was the same in the States, but the thing in London was, look, you've got to try and get on the board before you're 30. You've got to try and get a department head role before you're 30. So you kind of the clock was ticking and I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? Uh, and when I, um, I loved Lohad's thing, but basically... You know, we had we had our first child. London was expensive. So it was like, OK, move, move to get more money and see if you can get more opportunity. And when I moved to, to publicist, I got the opportunity to work on Coca-Cola, which was amazing across Europe. I got the opportunity to work on a bunch of really remarkable brands. Um, and then they offered me head of account management, which was frankly just it's fascinating. You're moving into a department role and the department role means you're dealing with obviously people's lives obviously the day-to-day of how they're feeling and what's going on in their lives and also trying to work out what accounts they should work on when they get salary rises or promotions how you deal with departmental budgets yeah it was it was a hell of a learning curve from being an account guy running sort of part of an account or being in charge of an account so it was it was very different you know now i'm sure with your global remit at mccann you know jumping to present day for just a second I would imagine an awful lot of your time is spent managing the company, managing your people, managing departments, and less time with the clients. Going back to that tenure in account management at Publicis, that was really your first foray into balancing that internal and work with the clients. Yeah, that's actually very well put, and it's probably true, was it was the first change when you sort of go into management of your agency rather than management of your client. I think you're right. I think it was it was that evolution that kind of started that process of going, okay, I understand how PLs work. I understand how to look at accounts and structure them properly. I look at resourcing. So I think it was a quite a big change. The thing at the time though was I actually was lucky enough I did that as a kind of part of a night job because a day job was I was involved with three or four accounts as well. So I kind of had a, a pretty full load of the accounts and creative and all the stuff that I love doing, but I also had the opportunity to kind of ex, sort of test myself and find different ways of dealing with some of the sort of obvious issues of personnel changes, how we move people around, how we grew people, how we developed our talent, so and how we trained them, training and development programs, and really kind of making sure that we took care of our people. And I think that was a pretty amazing period of, you know, Publicis was changing in London. They had lots of great accounts. Um, and it was probably at the time sort of less creatively driven, but it was certainly a very solid uh, client-led agency that actually did have very strong, long global relationships with clients. Okay, and then we go from Publicis on to YNR. Mm. That's quite funny. You call it YNR, of course. Back in the day, 
I joined six months after the merger, <coughs> excuse me, of Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolfe with YNR. So in my head, when I was hired, I was hired by Rainey Kelly Campbell and Rolfe. Uh, they were the four founders of their agency that YNR had bought and merged into their YNR London office. And I was really lucky because they were looking for a fourth managing partner. And they were a great agency. I, I'd followed them for years. They'd done amazing work on things like Times newspapers. They'd worked with Virgin Atlantic. And they were just a great agency, super smart. Um, and they'd all, you know, they really were a pretty dynamic uh, four leaders. Uh, so I went in there and I, I didn't really think I'd get the job and I, I wasn't quite sure at the time, but I wanted the job or what I was doing. But I went in there and I, I met all of them and I thought, God, this place is fantastic. Um, they've got like the best of a local agency with local names that are famous, that, that know how to do great work aligned with a network. So they could almost have the best of both worlds. And so I, I joined them as they they were like six months post-merger. And there was loads of work to do about how to integrate, how to bring people together, how to bring teams together, how they were going to work. Uh, and I was there about five years. And, um, you know, once again, I think the learning from that period was there was a, just a, a fantastic clarity of thought about how they approached strategy. They had super small teams. I mean, it was a bit like joining a startup, having never been in a startup, but it was a big startup. There were super small teams very dynamic we all worked on everything we used to get the founders in the room and we'd debate the work uh fight about the work get work through go present to clients we always felt that the founders were involved i mean it was it was a pretty it was a pretty remarkable um agency uh and, and it spawned a lot of people that came out of it and went on to do other things and went around the world to do different things, some of whom I'm still in touch with. And, you know, even the founders occasionally on social media, it's kind of nice to catch up with them. So, you know, it's, it was, it was a pretty remarkable period where I think it was the first sign of if I'd launched my own agency, it would have probably felt a bit like that scrappy entrepreneurial, challenging, super exciting, but very small, but within the network. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Fantastic. And five years, that's a, that's a good run there. Now, that was also the time when all of a sudden the world was starting to change, right? Mm. Mark Zuckerberg graduates from Harvard and as the Facebook becomes Facebook in 05. When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. Harvard didn't have a Facebook, so that's the gap that we were trying to fill. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. Um, uh, the iPhone comes around a couple years later. It's a revolutionary mobile phone. So were there any hints back then that you remember that you said, I think some big freight train is coming around the corner that's going to, you know, hit us pretty close to head on pretty soon? It's kind of interesting because it's really hard to take yourself back there, given where we are now. What I will tell you, which is a project that I remember we did, which we got super excited about, was we created a new product for the Sunday Times newspaper, and it was called The Month. And it was basically what is now, I mean, it started as a CD-ROM, then it became a DVD. I mean, this is hilarious. I mean, now you think, what are you talking about? But the remarkable thing was it was interactive. So we got sponsors and you could add content and you could unlock content. 
uh, and you could try and create a much more broader world of entertainment within your computer. And I remember when we did this, this all started and it was a fantastic project for early 2000s. I can't remember which year it was. And somewhere actually I have still got a copy of the CD-ROM that got distributed with a newspaper. Um, but it was an amazing project where you start to go, oh my God, if this really takes off and we can create that connectivity where you can download stuff, where you can bring it to life in a more entertaining way for the consumer, for the real, in their homes, this is remarkable. And I'll never forget that project. So I was working with some unbelievably smart people. 97% of what they said I didn't understand. I didn't understand what they were doing with the code. I didn't understand any of that stuff. But when I started to see the opportunity of connectivity and the opportunity to create that form of entertainment experience, I was like, oh my God, this is really, really dramatic and really going to change us. And credit to the client who's actually still a friend of mine today who bought it, who pioneered it. And when we took it to market, it was, it was a fantastic thing um, that we created. Obviously, as with all things, it became redundant pretty quick because technology moved so fast. But it was, it was a first, it's the first memory I have of going, oh my God, the world is changing so dramatically and the opportunities we're going to have to connect and communicate in different ways is mind-blowing. And I remember when we launched it, it was just fantastic. So let's talk about, I'm going to throw two words at you. And one is creativity and the other is success. And where McCann has absolutely zigged where everybody else has zagged, the large agency networks, cutting across all the holding companies, your ability to put creativity at the front of what you're doing, to connect creativity to driving results, and to have success, not just for your company, but more importantly, much more importantly, to lead to your client success. What is the secret sauce? What are you doing differently than everybody else? Well, it's hard to answer because obviously you don't know exactly what everyone else is doing. Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure whether I'm quite convinced I know what the secret sauce is. What I will tell you is I think the succession of events. I think what was interesting or remarkable for us was Harris came in. You've met Harris force of nature, um, came in with a very clear point of view about being client-centric, but also being creative-centric and thinking about the creativity we needed to do to, to have to drive our clients' businesses and that that was a critical part of it. I think within this is a puzzle, right, which is Suzanne Powers joined as global CSO and I think completely reframed how we approached strategy how we approach the way that we deliver our strategic frameworks for our clients, the way we think and the way we drive strategy to support and deliver better creativity. And the other one was Rob Riley, who obviously joined from Crispin um, a roughly, uh, I think in 2014, I might be wrong and he might kill me later for getting the date wrong. But I think if I think more than anything, I think it was the arrival of obviously Harris first as the leader of the organization, followed by Suzanne and then Rob, who I think just drove an agenda of really being clear on what our mission was as a company, 
what we were there to do and how we were there to drive uh, to better creative outcomes for our clients and being focused on really, really uh, delivering outstanding ideas that were right for their business, right for their brands, right for the consumer. And I think we wrapped that up. And I think we found brands um, and the brands that we had, we were very lucky. We had clients that wanted us to push them and wanted us to push harder to deliver the kind of work that they were looking for to really grab their consumers' attention and drive their growth. So I think in some ways you could say it's a perfect storm. It's a bunch of people coming together, aligned with a very clear mission. And we were lucky enough to have incredible clients that wanted to be on that journey with us. So talented people who mesh together as a team, clients who are willing to be aggressive, to take chances, to embrace creativity, and also uh, an interesting straddling of technology and the power of big ideas. Because the world has changed so much as we've been talking about, and you've been able to navigate and straddle those, you know, two camps, if you will, the old power of the big idea and the new power of technology-driven solutions and challenges. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think I think, and I think it's like everything, though. I think it is a bit like, and you know this too, is. It's like putting every brick in the wall, right? It's like every time you put a brick in the wall, you increase the power and the strength of the wall. You increase the ability to aim higher. And I think a lot of what we've done is making sure that we've continually invested in our capabilities. We've continually invested in our creativity uh, and we've continued to invest in our talent. And I think that's driven a great deal of the opportunity and the growth. And I think we've got fantastic leaders and a very diverse set of leaders. You know, if I look at Dev from New York and then North America, if I look at uh, a lot of the teams we have around the world, I think we've built and we have a lot of diverse leaders who both have the same belief and the same mission that we have. I mean, we have a very clear mission, right? Our job is to help brands play a meaningful role in people's lives. That's our, that's our mission. And our mission is to be the number one crazily driven marketing company. So we have some very clear drivers for what we're trying to achieve and how we're trying to achieve it. And I think if you align organizations around very clear organizing missions and you put processes in, you think about how you deliver the process to get there, I think you're going to find it a lot easier to get a much higher rate of return in terms of delivering the kind of work we should be delivering and challenging ourselves to keep pushing ourselves to be better. So, Chris, we met, I think it was right at the end of your tenure when you were running McCann London uh, towards the back or back half of 2013. Mm. And you then quickly uh, rose up the ladder here, rising from McCann, New York, to North America, to your current post as a global role. Talk about the difference and trepidation that you may have had leaving the comforts of your home country and of London and coming across the pond and uprooting your family and moving to New York? It was, it was really funny actually, because <laughs> it's kind of a funny story because I got a phone call from my then boss who said, Hey, I need to come see you. I'll come to your office. Kind of weird. Uh, and I'll, and I'll come see you. And um, I spent the weekend wondering what he was going to say. And I thought, is he going to offer me another job? Is he going to tell me I'm terrible? Am I getting fired? You know, what's going to happen? So I had no real clue. And then he came in and said, look, uh, 
we'd like you to move to New York, to Rumbacan, New York. And I've got to tell you, from the moment I first flew above Manhattan, the first time I landed at JFK, however many years earlier, I'd always been totally and utterly in love with New York. I love the energy. I love the fact that every time you look up, the view is different. I love the buildings. I love, and I love the people. I love, I love a lot of the fact of how energetic people are and how positive they are and optimistic they are. And I just got that. And also the humor. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fantastic place to be. So I'd always been in love with New York. Uh, and then I had to go home and spend four days and ask for four days to think about it and talk to my wife. And, you know, my wife was a bit like, really? You know, we've just moved house and we like it here and kids are in school and it's all great here. And so it was a pretty tough one, to be fair to her. It was, it was a pretty tough, I think, process for my wife to, to agree to make the move. And the other thing that clearly probably didn't help is I was turning around saying, hey, I might be terrible at this. I think this job's pretty tough. The Americans might hate me. You know, I'm this dodgy sort of empirical foreigner. Uh, so I might do terribly and I might be back in a year. So my wife's a bit like, okay, you're really selling this. This is going well. You, you wanted me to move. You want us to move our life and you might do badly and get fired. I was like, yeah, maybe, but you know, we should give it a go. So anyway, I got the backing I needed and, and credit to her and my kids who evolved pretty fast. I left them in the country in the UK for a while, did a commute and they came out for holidays and all that stuff. And, Frankly, that was probably really good because the first year, I think I, I probably slept in the office. I, we worked incredibly hard. The team was fantastic. Um, and we sort of created, I think, an incredibly strong culture of people who were determined to do the right things for their clients and do better work and to push themselves further and faster. So I think it was a pretty fantastic phase. I think what was interesting was when I arrived in New York, it was it's like the standing joke, right? I said, okay. I'm going to do a department meeting in my office of, you know, I don't know, broadcast. And then you suddenly realize we had 60 broadcast producers who were not going to get all in my office. And that's when you go, wow, this place is really big. There's a lot of people here. So I think the scale, the scale was super surprising. Um, I think the fact that, you know, you can drive across New York State and take six to 10 hours or whatever it is in a car, you go, okay, that's about the same distance as riding from one end of the UK to the other. So I think the scale was so surprising for me. Um, that, that, was a, that was amazing. And then I think the other part was actually, I've decided there are two types of British people. There are British people that arrive here and are kind of filled with a sense of wonderment uh, and humility about what this country has done in 200 years, how this country has evolved, how people are just genuinely so determined to do well and love it. And those that arrive in a kind of, slightly terrified by it or feel that it's not quite the country for them or they look down on it and I think I came from the first camp I was in awe of this place I was humbled by it and I just thought it was the most remarkable place to come and I probably took that slightly ridiculous energy and excitement and childishness into the job which probably might have made me sort of mildly lovable and probably pretty annoying. So so you talk about, Chris, you've gone from running the shop in London to New York to North America to uh, a true global remit. How do you spend your time now? I mean, I, I think that's got to be you know, a pretty tough thing for you to balance between internal management, managing the clients, what city to be in when, 
Um, obviously, you know, clients to keep happy, new clients to try and acquire. How do you make those decisions on a day-to-day basis? It's funny. It, it, it's a question I got asked recently, and I kind of worked on the theory of a third, a third, a third. A third of it is about travel slash internal. A third of it should be about clients, and a third of it should be about new business. Uh, and frankly, within that, one of those thirds is also about talent, both meeting new talent, talking to talent, engaging with the key leaders. I mean, it's so it's kind of a movable feast. I've got my thirds wrong, so I'm sure it adds up to four thirds. There you go. But the reality is, I think you continually learn in this role how to use your time. And it becomes easier over time where you start to look at, actually, there's a fire over there. I need to get involved in that. I want to support the team to help them with that client issue. I want to help the team in terms of a new business prospect or how we're going to pitch that client. I want to help people in terms of thinking about what's going on inside their region, inside their business, and then how do we help them grow? And then the other part is I spent a fair amount of my time, obviously, talking to the regional heads, talking to agency heads, talking to business leaders. So I, I spread it pretty, um, it's very varied, but I reckon there's probably a cadence I've never written down, if that makes sense. I think it's always changing and I'm always learning. And I think I've learned a hell of a lot because when you run an agency, you're involved in everything. You, you genuinely, as you start to rebuild or build your agency, create momentum, you, you know, you really are a bit of a micromanager. Obviously, that changes over time as we got bigger and we developed and the leaders sort of told me to get out of the way. Um, that was running the agency. Running a region is more about how do you support the regional, uh, the regional overall and each agency within it. So it's a bit like rather than having one child, I've suddenly got multiple children. So how do you help support multiple children? And then I think when you go to a global level, you've got multiple children who are actually in multiple countries or multiple regions. So it's kind of the complexity grows out. And actually, fun enough, I do think the parental analogy is a good one. I think you start to evolve and maybe your children have children. So suddenly you've got grandchildren. So without torturing this analogy too much, I think that is kind of how I look at it when you go into a global role is you've got children and you're supporting more children across more countries and more, across more time zones. And what you've got to do is balance that with making sure you don't lose sight of how you're supporting the clients and making sure the clients are getting what they need. You don't miss out on the opportunity to look at new client prospects, new opportunities, um, and, and also cross-selling. Remember, you know, McCann is one part of McCann World Group. And a key part of our role is to ensure that our clients get the best of world groups. So if they have a need that sits with an experiential, then you absolutely should be introducing someone from Momentum to go talk to them. And I think knowing how to do some of that is a critical part of this role too. What keeps you up at night when you wake up two in the morning, you know, you can't sleep. Is there one particular part of the business that you worry about? I don't think there's ever one particular part of the business you worry about consistently. I think you worry about different things according to the day. You worry about things like, you know, certain client challenges that are kind of rolling around in your head that you're trying to solve and trying to work out how to get solved. Um, I think you worry about your people. I mean, in, in a sense, this should be the number one thing right now, given the timing of when we're talking, Matt, is 
I think without a doubt, the first and foremost consideration right now is the safety, the care, and the consideration for our people um, who are all over the world facing the challenges that we all know we're facing. I think that's one of the things for me is, I think, worrying about our people, the talent, making sure that they're motivated, directed, uh, and delivering optimally to make them and, and us happy, you know, and delivering you know, a fulfilling and offering a fulfilling career for them. I think that's number one, which is our talent. Number two is obviously our clients and making damn sure that we're delivering the best possible work for them, the best possible solutions for them with the best possible teams. Um, and I think the third is making sure that we are a really uh, good part of the world. I think there's still a role for all of us to be a critical part of culture. I mean, the recent study we did in True Sun Central around, you know, whether consumers looking for support or leadership or guidance, you know, it's often not governments, it's often from brands. And I think having a way of ensuring that we make our, the brands we help uh, make them meaningful, making them have purpose, making them deliver in the world. I think we've got lots of examples, I think, whether it be Mascar, whether it be Microsoft, whether it be L'Oreal, I think we have lots of examples where brands really have um, taken on the challenge and delivered as brands that have purpose and have purpose in the world to support consumers and help consumers make the right choices or live better lives. And I think that's one of the critical parts is, um, so I think, how do we ensure that we show up in the world to help make it a better place? Fantastic. That's a, that's a great answer. And I think you're, the, the point of consistency going back to the very beginning of our conversation is your embrace and now McCann's embrace of the human side of people, of talent. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough to get to meet and know an awful lot of your people. And Suzanne, I know pretty well and I have enormous respect for Rob. And uh, I think you've got the best comms guy in the business. And, and I know he's much more than that, but we think hold Jeremy Miller in such high regard. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's that understanding of the people part, both your own people your clients, and ultimately the work that you do for your clients to help improve the lives of all of us. Mm. And, and I think that's so vitally important. So last question, Chris. Looking out at the landscape, either early in your career or right up to present day, who are some of the great minds who you really admire, who influence you? God, that's a great question. Um, I think, I think there have been a few. I, I mean, I had... Um, my very first boss who ended up, uh, he was running PNG at the time. Um, he made a fantastic comment to me, which is he was, um, he was massive in horse racing. He used to go gambling on horse racing and all kinds of stuff. Really fascinating man. He turned around to me and said, I think you're probably the worst possible account exec we've ever had, but you'll probably make the best possible managing director. And it was a super interesting comment because obviously I was seriously offended that he ever thought I was going to be a terrible account exec, which I think I was quite a terrible account exec. Um, but it was nice that he thought that I was a very good leader, even when I was about 23. So he, he had a big impact on me. Um, I'm not sure I can name every single one, I think, because I know I'm going to miss people out. Um, I think Jim Kelly at Rainey Kelly uh, was a massive influence on me. He was an outstanding account guy. He always cut through to the issue. Um, and he had a kind of honesty and a, frankly, on occasion, a brutality about him that I think I learned so much from. Um, and if he ever hears this, I'm saying that with 
immense respect and praise. Um, I think if I move from there uh, and then I move into Lohad Spink, I think, you know, the, the culture Frank created, I think, was amazing. And a lot of people I work with at Lowe's, I learned so much from. Um, and then the current, frankly, the current team. I mean, I've learned so much from Harris. I've learned, I've learned a hell of a lot from Rob and Suzanne. Um, I've learned a hell of a lot from, frankly, from IPG and from the leadership of IPG, from Michael, from Philippe. You know, I, I think all of these people, I think, have had an impact on me as I've become part of this company and part of this culture because, frankly, I'm now up to 15 years with this company and I think so much of the things they've done and the culture they've built has sort of rubbed off on me and certainly become part of my values. So many people. Yeah, but that that that, but that importance of people, the importance of humanity. I think you know leadership is set at the top, and and you see that in so many aspects of life. My uh, daughter went to Boston University, and a good friend of ours uh, is a partner at Bain, and one of the senior partners at Bain is a majority owner of the Celtics. And once a year, I would call him, and he would very kindly get us tickets for the game. And uh, the first time we went, my daughter was a freshman. This was probably about five years ago. And we're sitting under the basket, and a gentleman wearing a sport jacket walks up to us, and he says, Hi, I'm Steve Pagliusha. I'm the owner of the Celtics. Um, I wanted to thank you and Eliza, my daughter, for coming, and I'd like to introduce you to my friend. This is Bob Kraft. And uh, this is the uh, general manager, Danny Ainge. And, you know, we're going to get something to eat. Would you like to come with us? And he could not have been nicer. And there was absolutely no reason for him to have been that nice to us other than that's just who he was. And, you know, the arena there, everybody that works there Mm. is nice. Everyone that works there is friendly. And contrast that with Madison Square Garden, which is one hell of a business, but, you know, the tone yeah. at the garden is very different. And that is starts with, you know, the leadership. And I think when you look at IPG and you look at Michael uh, and the whole team, what he injects into everything every time we've been with him, and he's been flown all over the world to participate in advertising weeks with us, mm-hmm. is he's got humanity. And that's not, that's either, you yeah. either have it or you don't. And I think Michael has that and sets the tone for the whole company. If you link to that, I think it's humanity. And you say it's respect for everyone, right? I think, you know, it's so important that every single person in the organization feels valued. Um, And it doesn't matter what they do or where they come from. But it's the fact that actually they're so critical to what we do and our success in whatever role they have. I'll never forget, there used to be a guy on the desk. He used to do the night desk at an agency I worked at. I can't remember. What, I, it might have been DMB, and and I used to every night. I talked to this guy. I was always late. I was leaving late, so I used to talk to this guy. And eventually, I sort of stood there and said, "So, how? What have you done?" And this guy had rowed across the Atlantic in a small rowing boat. And you go, "What? How did you do that?" So he's famous for rowing across the Atlantic. But he was working on the back door of our agency. My point is, we never know what amazing things people have done until you stop and ask them questions or you talk to people and you make time for people. And I think that's the other critical part of humanity is respect for making time for people. And I think, you know, the more you make time for people, the more you learn and the more you actually help them both understand they feel like they're part of something. And I think that's a critical part. I think wherever I go in the world, 
and I go and meet people in our agencies, I know full well they feel like they're part of McCann and they're part of World Group. And that's kind of almost the best possible ad you could ever have to your network is the fact that people do genuinely feel proud of and love being part of our network. Fantastic. Well, what a, what a great way to end. Chris, thanks so much for uh, making the time. Pleasure. And uh, stay safe and healthy, and I'll speak to you soon. Hey, Matt, look after yourself. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.